ongoing and future retreat of glaciers and ice sheets is a key indicator of climate change and is often mentioned in research and media articles discussing the response of the planet to rising temperatures. But with the majority of us living away from the coldest parts of our planet, why should we be concerned by the loss of the Earth's snow and ice? Hello and welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick, and this month we're asking the question, why does ice matter? So later on, we'll be talking to experts in the field about the importance of glaciers and ice sheets, including an interview with a scientist currently in Greenland. And Noel, you also have a background in ice. I do, yes. I spent a few years in Canada. I was doing a PhD there looking at how different weather conditions can affect how uh, snow and ice melts. So I was mostly based in uh, the mountains around British Columbia, but I also had a chance to spend some time in Alaska and in the Arctic and some cool places like that as well. When I think about, you know, snow and ice, there is a relationship there because snow actually transforms to ice. So snow, when it falls down, it's kind of light and it's airy, but then if it's allowed to lie in place and other layers of snow can build up on top of it, uh, the weight of that snow on top of it can start to squeeze the underlying snow. And basically what that does is you're, you're pushing or you're squeezing all of the little air pockets out of the snow and you're making it more compact and tighter. So if you think about maybe if you're out uh, on a snowy, a snowy day and you're making a snowball and you want to be really mean and you want to make a really hard one to hurt your friend or something, <laughs> well, if you, uh, if you really compress it and compact it tightly, what you're doing is you're pushing out all that air and you're also probably creating a little bit of meltwater that's going in to fill up the spaces that was filled with that air and refreezing again. And essentially, you're compacting the snow and you're pressing it down and making it more dense. And that density increase essentially is making ice. So am I right in thinking that this is how glaciers and ice sheets form? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, they'll form anywhere where you can have snow building up over time. So from one year to the next. And as those layers build up and build up, the, the deeper layers get compressed and turned into ice. And then the growth of, of a glacier and, or an ice sheet is essentially a balance between how much snow is taking place and how much snow has been able to build up and then how much uh, melt is taking place during that year also. So if you have more snow or ice uh, that is added to a glacier than is melting, then you'll have a glacier growing and, and vice versa. So what's been happening in the last 150 years or so is that this balance is being disrupted. We're removing ice from glaciers and ice sheets faster than we can replace it with snowfall. And as a result, we have this observed widespread retreat of our planet's glaciers. Are they all shrinking or like, are there any that are growing? So they're pretty much all shrinking. There are hundreds of thousands of glaciers worldwide. Um, there's an inventory of about over 200,000 or so that are sort of recognized or kept track of. Uh, essentially, all are retreating. There are some exceptions. We see that, for example, they may be extending. Sometimes this doesn't necessarily mean that the glacier is growing. It can just mean that its flow has sped up. So in other words, that it's starting to flow faster down the mountain. Uh, in other cases, you may have uh, situations where you're actually getting more precipitation. So you're getting more snowfall in places which were originally too cold to have snowfall uh, or lots of snowfall occurring so because of that increase in snowfall you might be actually getting an increase in the in the growth of a glacier these are the exceptions the vast majority are retreating 
in the history of the world, like we know that Ireland, for example, was covered in glaciers. I mean, because, like, you know, we have that great big U-shaped valley in Glendalough. Um, so we know that that Ireland did have glaciers and those have have gone and, and they leave their mark on the landscape. How do we how do we know that they're shrinking today? Like what 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 are we using to kind of measure that? Yeah, as you say, Liz, I mean, we have signs from their movements from the past. As you, say, you know, Glendalough yeah. is a good example. We've got the drumlins in Clue Bay. And these are indicators of how they've moved and retreated in, in the past. Glaciers are so sensitive to, to climate change and to changes in our atmospheric conditions. Therefore, we can use them almost as a metric, as a measuring device to look at how the climate has varied. So in current years, what we can do is look at photographs because we can see these either aerial photographs or land photographs that were taken of glaciers over the last century or so. And we can compare them with ones taken today and see just how much they have retreated. Uh, we have this satellite imagery, which is showing us images from all over the world of ice sheets and glaciers and how they have retreated over the last few years. So it's a real physical, visual representation of climate change as it's happening. And we can actually go further back as well. Like, Can you tell me a bit more about ice cores so when you go to somewhere like antarctica you can have over a million years of snow built up these layers and layers of snow that have built up and formed ice so as the snow is occurring as we mentioned like little bubbles of air get trapped and that's mm. essentially trapping air from the atmosphere at the time that it snowed so ice cores essentially go down and dig down deep 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 into the ice to try and sample ice from hundreds of thousands of years ago say and we look at the little ice bubbles that are inside those samples to have an idea of what the atmosphere was like at that time. So what we can tell from those samples can include what the temperature was at the time and also what the concentration of the various gases in the atmosphere uh, were, including carbon dioxide. Well, one of the oldest is about 800,000 years old that we have in terms of a sample, uh, an ice core sample. By looking at, at, at that whole record over the last 800,000 years, we can say with a high level of confidence that the current levels we have in our atmosphere are fi far higher than anything we had during that period. Um, and this, it's likely over a greater period, but as I said, we, we have this record, a, a very detailed and sort of a confident record over the last 800,000 years. Just this month, actually, carbon dioxide levels, which are measured uh, in Hawaii on uh, Mauna Loa, have reached a new record, which is 420 parts per million. So that's uh, a measure of, of concentration of, of a gas in the atmosphere. So 420 parts per million of carbon dioxide. And that is now over 50% higher than those levels were before the Industrial Revolution. So we've increased the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere over the whole globe, a huge, huge area. Uh, by over 50% uh, in the last 150 years. Yeah, so so basically you're saying that in 800,000 years, the CO2 level has never been higher than it is today. Yes, that's correct. We do see spikes in CO2 as well through that length, through that period, which, which correlate very well with spikes in temperature. So we know that there's a strong link there between temperature and carbon dioxide. But we haven't seen anything like the concentration level that we have now or nothing like the rate of increase that we have seen in previous times through through the history and through the ice core record any increases any rate of increase has been much slower than what we've seen over the last 150 years and it, it, it correlates so well with the the dawn of, of the industrial revolution so it, like it's almost you know a certainty that that it is anthropogenically forced Yes, the, the scientists who, who work on this area uh, have a very high confidence in, in that. 
we're kind of going to going to look into ice from a regional perspective and then like zoom out if you like and look at it on a global perspective so i think from a regional perspective we're going to find out a little bit more about glaciers just before we introduce our our first guest on glaciers can you um describe to me know what glaciers actually are and how they move a glacier essentially is an accumulation of of ice and snow and and rocks as well actually and this is this is flowing downhill under its own weight a bit like a a very slow moving river as we mentioned before they they accumulate snow up in the higher regions of say the mountains and that gets compressed into ice and flows downhill where it melts or or breaks off we would recognize them from you know pictures of the alps or pictures of snowy mountains where we have these again these kind of like icy rivers flowing through flowing down through a valley through the mountains ice sheets then are on another scale that's when you see a picture of greenland or antarctica that expanse that landscape of ice that's essentially what an ice sheet is now we'll be talking to uh, some experts later who'll, who'll give us some some solid definitions on what defines an ice sheet um, and then as you mentioned sea ice is well, as it sounds, it's where we get uh, freezing occurring on the surface of the sea, generally occurs seasonally uh, in the polar regions, and its extent uh, changes from, from winter to summer. Glaciers and ice sheets are really kind of land-based ice, um, in a sense, and, and sea ice is, is the water bit. Absolutely, um, and that's an important yeah. distinction as well, that, that glaciers and, and, and uh, ice sheets are land-based, and that's, that's important for things like how they may contribute to sea level rise, which we'll, we will talk about in a little bit. I spoke to a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Harry Zakalari, who has researched the glaciers in this region, and he's got some really good insights about their future and their importance. We're familiar with the snow and ice-covered Alps that we have here in Europe, and they create these beautiful, picturesque scenes. But what is the value or the importance of this ice to those that live in these regions? Well, first of all, a glacier is like a natural water resource, and it's really something useful. A glacier, let's not talk about climate change, but just in general, will always become a bit bigger during winter and a bit smaller during summer. And this is pretty interesting because it's typically during summer when it's really hot and dry that people need water. So what will happen is that you'll be getting water from your natural water resource, which, which your glacier is. Of course, in a changing climate, this will not be the same anymore. What will happen is at first you will get even more water because the glacier retreats and becomes smaller. So a lot of melt and a lot of water coming. But then on the longer term, once your glacier is much smaller, uh, especially during summer, there will not be any water provision and this can have an impact on the flow of ri rivers and, and for water availability, water consumption for many people living uh, well downstream of these glaciers. Good example for the European Alps, uh, for instance, when we look at Switzerland, produces almost half of its electricity with hydropower. And of course, the meltwater from glacier is important here. And in a changing climate, again, there will be different water supply and this may affect uh, your electricity production uh, from hydropower. Now, of course, it's not only restricted to European Alps. This, this phenomenon which I'm describing, of which you have the water, is maybe important in European Alps, but there's other regions in the world where it's absolutely crucial. And then when think of Himalayas, where there's hundreds of millions of people living downstream of, of these glaciers, 
or in the Andes in Southern America, their glaciers are really, really important water resources. Okay, so as you say, it's it's important in Europe, but we see that situation repeated all over the world, really. Um, and up to now, say in the European Alps, have we already seen a response uh, due to current climate change? Yes, definitely. Um, in fact, almost everywhere in the European Alps, glaciers have massively been thinning. Um, and visually, you see this, in fact, as a glacier retreating, because if a glacier becomes thinner and thinner, especially the lower parts, well, at one point, there's no ice left. Uh, so you may have seen some of these iconic images where you've got big valleys covered with ice, and then typically pictures from the 1850s, 1900s. And then you see how these glaciers have been massively retreating. In fact, since the start of the the industrial era where we see that temperatures have been rising, glaciers have been massively retreating. And especially over the last couple of decades, this retreat has been very, very pronounced. And, and glaciers are really hugely retreating. You can see this for all glaciers almost in European Alps and for some of the iconic glaciers, the very touristic glaciers, like for instance, the Rhone Glacier or Alec Glacier, which is the biggest glacier in European Alps. It's very well documented. We can really see this with historical images, but nowadays also with satellites, we can really observe really in detail how glaciers are retreating and, and losing mass. Okay, so they're a real visual indicator of, uh, of how our climate is changing. Yeah, I would say they're probably some of the, the clearest indicators of how climate changes. I think if, if you're talking to someone who doesn't really believe that climate is changing and there's some effects, I think it's visually very, very strong to bring them to such a glacier. Um, in the European Alps, in some places, there's really like um, there's really a parkours or, or routes being made where you just walk along where the glacier was, and then you're standing somewhere, and it says the glacier was here uh, in 1980. And for instance, you look around and you say, "Well, where's the glacier now?" And it's like one kilometer further. So clearly shows how how glaciers have been changing, and this is mainly due to well to to anthropogenic climate change. So how are we expecting them to change in the coming century? Well, what we try to do as scientists when we make projections, uh, we have computer models, which sounds pretty abstract. It's, it's a lot of codes uh, uh, with which we make simulations of how glaciers change. And what we typically do is we know how glaciers have been changing in the past. So what we'll try to do at first is we'll try to reproduce past changes. Uh, so we'll, we'll try to tweak our model and to see if it does what it, what it needs to be doing. And once this is the case, we have some confidence in the model, and then we can start using these models to make projections for the future. And it looks, well, pretty grim. Uh, at least our, our computer simulations um, indicate, for instance, that in the coming 30 years, so by 2050, we may be losing 50% of the total ice mass in the European Alps. What is also pretty striking is that even if we would be able to stop climb the, the temperatures, if we could fix them at present day levels, even then glaciers would still melt for quite some time. And that's because glaciers respond in a very slow way to, to changing climatic conditions. What I think is really important to stress though, is that what I've been describing now is the, what happens until 2050. So the, the coming 30 years, but what happens at, in 2100 is really driven by what we'll be doing today. There we really see that there's some diverging paths. And so it's really important, like our emissions and the way we'll be transitioning into a greener society. Well, we'll, we'll really have an influence on how glaciers will look like at the end of the century, also in the European Alps. To give you a, a bit of an idea of the numbers, if we're able to really make a green transition, limit temperature increase to a about 1.5 to plus two degrees, that is compared to pre-industrial levels. So a bit in line with the Paris Agreement from 2015, uh, we could still be saving around 
35 to 40 percent of the present day glacier volume. On the other hand, if we really continue emitting a lot and there's no green transition and there's a lot of greenhouse gases being emitted, um, then we can end up in a very grim case where we'll have less than 10% of the present day ice mass left by 2100. The actions that we're taking nowadays will really determine how glaciers look like at the end of the century. Stark reminder there of, of how important the decisions we make now will be by the end of this century. I guess maybe tied in with that, if you are looking at the current situation and you're looking for some hope or some optimism to take in terms of the future of our glaciers is there something that you think of or is there something that you can point to well first of all i think it's still it's hopeful the fact that we can still influence how they will be in the second part of the of the 21st century so it's not a, a lost cause of course we will have some some change so i think it's this is something positive that that, that we can still influence this and we can still save some of these magnificent glaciers. I think in general, I think there's a lot of positive signs, um, but this is more general discussions about climate change and, and which direction this is going. But I don't think we should be too negative. Of course, things are transitioning in a, in a way which is too slow, for instance, to reach the agreements of, of Paris agreements, like to limit temperatures at plus 1.5 or plus 2 degrees. It seems really we're going to go uh, to higher temperature increases, at least if we don't make a, a fast transition. So the transition is unfortunately a bit slow, but on the other hand, I mean, there's positive signs um, when thinking just of electric cars, which are now uh, up and coming and which we'll, which we'll see more and more, or just the fact, I mean, a lot of things are just economy driven and just the fact that renewable energy is now becoming in many cases has the same price or even becomes cheaper than, than fossil fuel. There will be automatically a transition but the question is just how fast this transition will occur. And of course, for glaciers, as they react slowly, we need this transition to occur pretty rapidly if you want to save some of them. So I would say there is definitely there's positive signals, but the pace at which we're evolving towards these, these positive things, well, there's some discussion there, but there, there's some, well, it could be a bit faster uh, to reach some of the, the goals of the Paris Agreement. Harry mentioned some of the ways glaciers are important to society in terms of providing fresh water, irrigation and hydropower. But they're also important to ecosystems as well, Noel, right? So when you have warm, dry periods of the year, when you might have low water levels in your rivers, things like that, glaciers provide this source of water to keep river levels and flow levels topped up. So that's obviously very important to any creatures that might be living in the water, like fish or might be using it as a, as a drinking source. Also, something that, that meltwater does is because it's cold, it regulates the temperature of these rivers during the hot parts of the year. So you have this injection of cool water, which helps, cools down, which helps to cool down the water. And this can be very important for reducing the spread of disease and viruses and parasites, and for facilitating things like uh, the spawn of salmon, for example, ensuring that the, the temperatures are at the right level and that you don't have a excessive level of, as mentioned, parasites, things like that. You are like building and monitoring these weather stations on various glaciers during your PhD, right? Uh, yes, as you say, Liz, uh, essentially building weather stations on, on these glaciers in a, a region close to the Canadian Rockies. And just looking wow. at how 
Yeah, it was oh, amazing landscapes. And what we were aiming to understand is how these different weather conditions can accelerate the melt of a glacier. And when you can understand that better, you can then build better models to forecast how they're going to respond in a, in a future climate. As you said, yeah, we would be we would go up for field work to build these stations. We might spend a week or two in the mountains, either camping on or beside uh, these glaciers. We They're quite remote, so we would travel there uh, by helicopter and get dropped off and then left there for, as I said, for a week or two. And so were you freezing? Like, you know, were, <laughs> did you have like this like super tog um, sleeping bag? And, <laughs> and, you know, were you wearing like ski, like ski boots or? It, it obviously would get pretty cold at times. You, we were there yeah. at different seasons. A lot of the time we'd work during the summer, but sometimes in spring as well. You are certainly bringing all your warm gear with you. To just to get to, it's worth it to get to work in some of these locations it really is a privilege because you're out on your own there's no one else around it's stunningly beautiful you recognize that you're there for a reason because you want to do something to help yeah. try and protect these landscapes and also you know landscapes that also provide such a service to to the communities that that depend on them so we've talked about the rivers of ice now we're going to move on to the landscape of ice the ice sheets ice sheets are kind of more of a a global um viewpoint because they have an important influence on the planet as a whole because, well, basically because they're so large. And we've got these two great big ice caps um, that you mentioned earlier, uh, Greenland and the Antarctic, um, as well as the surrounding um, sea ice. Um, yeah. So we're going to actually talk to a, um, an expert um, who's currently based in Greenland, glaciologist Dr. Penny Howe. How's it going? Very good. Good to see you. Okay, so Greenland is, is enormous and you're currently there, which is, is fantastic. Um, can, you, can you describe for us the landscape that you're working in? Yes, I can. Um, so I'm in my home office at the moment. Um, when I look outside, um, on my left, I see uh, a lot of snow. We've had a lot of snow over the winter and we're just coming into the spring now. And I see a big mountain in front of me uh, called Stormalena. And then on my right, I look out onto Fjord. So uh, I live in the capital city of Greenland, which is Nuuk. Um, there's about 17,000 people here. And uh, this city is situated at the entrance of a really big fjord system. Um, this fjord system in Greenlandic, it's called Nuukkangasjua, uh, or simply known as Nuukfjord. And uh, it's probably one of the biggest fjord systems on the west coast of Greenland. And if we were to travel 160 kilometers up the fjord, we would reach uh, the Greenland ice sheet. I think this is something that when you look at a map of Greenland, it's hard to figure out how close settlements in Greenland are to the ice sheet. But in the case of Nuuk, we're actually still quite far away. To travel to it, we would need to sail about three or four hours up the fjord in good conditions. And we'd have to dodge between icebergs. We would have um, a lot of uh, different conditions to deal with just to get to the ice sheet. So it's not exactly outside my back door and straight into my back garden, but um, it's actually still quite quite a distance just to get there. So what, what kind of work are you doing in, in Greenland at the moment, Penny? I am a researcher at ASEAN Greenland Survey. And what we primarily deal with is the mapping, surveying, and monitoring of the physical environment of Greenland. This includes the ice sheet and monitoring its changes. It includes the impact of the ice sheet on changes downstream, 
hydrology, ecosystems, fjords, freshwater resources, you name it, if it's of anything to do with the physical environment of Greenland, um, we are responsible for it. My background is in glaciology. Uh, I have a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, but I spent a lot of time studying glaciers in Svalbard, the archipelago above Norway. So my primary interest here in Greenland is obviously glaciers and the ice sheet. What is an ice sheet? So an ice sheet, by definition, is a mass of glacial land ice that's covering a large expanse of the Earth. They have like a specific classification that it's meant to be over 50 square kilometers. So that's about seven standard football pitches. Um, it's unconstrained by topography, so it can have uh, mountain ranges and uh, different like valleys beneath it. And as the ice sheet retreats, it reveals uh, the topography underneath. There are two ice sheets on Earth today, uh, Greenland and Antarctica. And they contain roughly 99% of the freshwater of the entire Earth. So the Greenland ice sheet, it's approximately 1.7 million square kilometers. Uh, it covers about 80% of the island of Greenland. And to put that in perspective, if we were to say compare it to like the size of Ireland, uh, the, the ice sheet is approximately 20 times the size of Ireland. I think this is something that is very hard to comprehend to have an ice sheet that expands so much over the Earth's surface. I think I read somewhere that the Greenland ice sheet, it actually accounts for 1% of the entire Earth's surface, which is huge. So that's what an ice sheet is. So you're in a great position then to, uh, to see if the ice sheets have started to respond today to current climate change. Are, are we seeing those yeah. changes taking place? Definitely. I think that is a confident yes. Obviously, in the past century, we've seen increasing air temperature, increase in ocean temperatures. Globally, this has meant a substantial loss of ice. For Greenland, um, we've seen marked changes in the total volume of ice, and that's generally been very closely studied. We generally see um, a split between uh, a mass loss due to uh, surface melt, so melting of the ice sheet, and then we also see um, a really massive change in the amount of ice that is being discharged into the oceans. Just to give you an example, the, one of the glaciers up the fjord from us is uh, called Narsapsermia. It uh, flows from the ice sheet to the peripheral edge and then out into the fjord. It's retreated over four kilometres since 2004. And we've seen its velocity, so the pace at which that this uh, glacier is moving, it's increased threefold uh, since 2004 as well. These are quite alarming rates at which we're seeing uh, acceleration of ice retreat, acceleration of uh, ice velocities, and that is something that is very visible in the environment here. There are some stark figures, all right. And do we have an idea of how we think the ice sheets will continue to respond as we look into the future, say towards the end of this century? This is, this is a, a complex question. What is often missed with Greenland is that you look at it on a map and you think it's one country. But often um, what people don't realize with Greenland is it covers such a huge uh, latitudinal range. We are covering areas from South Greenland, which is on par with like the Shetland Islands and Iceland, all the way up to essentially near to the North Pole. It's such a huge climatic uh, region that you're dealing with. 
And so you've got a, different, a lot of different conditions, a lot of different dynamics that are going on in Greenland. Generally, what we can say is um, we will continue to see this ice sheet retreating. Greenland has a sea level equivalent volume of, of around seven meters. It is forecast that by 2100, the Greenland ice sheet will have contributed roughly up to 18 centimeters. And so just to clarify a, there, you're saying that if, if the entire Greenland ice sheet was to melt, which I know you're saying is that's not what you're saying, but if it was, that it would contribute or add seven metres of height to global sea level. Is that correct? Yes. We talk about Greenland and Antarctica, Antarctica being the really big store of water and Greenland still being quite a significant store, but not quite as much as Antarctica. But the rate at which we're seeing it in Greenland is much more rapid than what we're seeing in Antarctica. You mentioned Antarctica there as well. What kind of, of volume are we considering, or, or maybe I should say addition to sea level rise potential is there in Antarctica? So for Antarctica, I think it's around the level of like 60 meters, that if all of the ice in Antarctica melted, uh, we would see an, an increase in sea level of about 60 meters. Um, obviously, that's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen very gradually, very slowly. The way that we can control that better is through actions of ourselves and also actions of our governments. In terms of all this, you know, fresh, cold meltwater, is it possible that our ocean currents could be affected by this? Yes, the ocean is predicted to uh, transition to unprecedented conditions in Greenland. So we are looking at increase in ocean temperatures, a greater upper ocean stratification. So the layers of water in the upper levels are, are going to stratify even further further acidification, uh, oxygen decline, and also these in turn will also um, affect uh, the net primary production, so our biological and our ecological activity in the water. Extreme events are also projected um, related to ocean currents, so we are likely to see more frequent events of uh, like marine heat waves, uh, extreme events like El Nino and La Nina. We could see a tenfold increase in more intense, longer uh, extreme events like this. And of course, this instability will disrupt ecosystems, biology, and also the human activities that occur around the ice sheet. You mentioned stratification. That's where we have layering in the ocean due to temperature. Is that correct? Temperature and density? Yeah. Um, the way that we can think about it is in terms of temperature. Like if you walk into the ocean and your feet feel cold, but then in the upper levels uh, around your shoulders, you feel like this uh, warm sensation of water. That's because of a stratification in temperature. If you were to describe a typical day carrying out research out on the ice sheet uh, for, for your current work, what might that involve? One of our primary uh, glacier sites that we are monitoring very closely is in the fjord just around the corner from us. What we would uh, typically do to monitor glacier conditions is to dig snow pits firstly and do some surveying of uh, the snow area on top of the glacier to see what the snowpack looks like, uh, how much has the ice been melting over the course of the season. We also have weather stations out there to look at uh, general conditions, so things like air temperature, wind, and also um, the darkening of the ice surface, so that's called albedo. So looking at how 
conditions on the glacier are generally changing. Additionally, one of uh, my core responsibilities is to maintain time-lapse cameras. So just like how on your phone, we can take many different photos to stick your, your phone camera in front of uh, like, like a potted plant to see how it grows. What my speciality is, is sticking cameras in front of glaciers and to monitor their changes over time using the images that we take with them. When we generally go out, we're there to do a lot of different aspects all at once. Um, and to try and pack as much into each day as possible. Fantastic. Is there somewhere that we can view that time-lapse imagery? Not yet. It's in the works and we really want this to happen. One of the, one of the actual problems with having like a relay of images back to here is that we don't necessarily have cell reception. Um, we don't have um, a lot of the, the infrastructure that other places would have to facilitate that our monitoring is done in real time. Uh, again, it's one of the things that I never really considered before I moved here, just the vastness of Greenland. In the time that I've been here, I've largely been exploring in Nukefjord. Um, so I have my own boat and I can go and explore that fjord, but I've barely scratched the surface on exploring that environment. There's a lot to do just even in this one fjord system. And to think that there are many fjord systems in Greenland, I think it would take a lifetime to explore the entire environment here. So if you were looking for a, you know, a ray of optimism or you're looking for some hope when you think of the future of our ice sheets, is there something that you cling to say when you, when you want to be optimistic about, about the future? I think there is so much at stake with regard to um, ice sheet loss globally and also locally. I think the ray of hope that maybe we can have is that people's passion and curiosity seems to be growing. And I think that has been especially facilitated by more discussion uh, through podcasts like this, through social media. Um, and that has obviously been most exhibited in our younger generations uh, with a participation in the climate strikes and just talking about this more. I think that's a really nice uh, sense of optimism there that through education, through people talking about it more, that potentially this can filter up to the people who actually make uh, the decisions. And this is something we also see here in Greenland, that young people, they're really passionate about their culture, their heritage, um, and all of this, especially in Greenland, is ingrained in the environment and the nature here. That is one thing that is so refreshing about living here is that you see that on a day-to-day -day basis that people here connect their identity with nature. And I think that's a really important message to keep hold of, especially as a scientist, to know that that's partly why you're doing it, is to gain a better understanding that will reach other people beyond the scientific community. So Penny was talking about sea level rise there um, and the, the loss of ice sheets and snow and ice cover in general can also impact how much energy the earth absorbs from the sun as well, right, No. 
Yeah, that's right, Liz. It's called the uh, albedo of, of snow and ice. So essentially, if you look at snow and ice, you can tell that it's brightly colored and that uh, makes them naturally quite reflective to sunlight. Energy that's hitting, hitting those surfaces that's coming from the sun, a lot of it gets reflected back out. So if you think about on a warm, sunny day, if you wear a white t-shirt, for example, you're going to be cooler in it than if you're wearing, say, a black t-shirt. You're going to feel you're going to feel the heat more if you're wearing a black t-shirt. So the same thing happens for a landscape that's covered in snow and ice. It's reflecting a lot of that heat, a lot of that energy. So if there's a reduction then in the amount of the Earth's surface that's covered by snow and ice, uh, more of the sun's energy can be absorbed by those surfaces. So that will allow the ground to warm up or, for example, the oceans to absorb more sunlight and more heat. And this allows the, the land surface and the oceans to warm up. The vicious cycle with this is that as those surfaces warm up, it encourages more snow and more uh, ice to melt. And that means that there's less reflectivity and the temperatures increase even further and you get into this vicious cycle. So it's called a, it's called a climate feedback or a feedback loop where uh, the uh, warming encourages even more warming to take place. Even a small change can set off bigger changes. And, and that's because of these, these feedback loops uh, that, that, are, that are embedded in the climate system. And the ice albedo feedback is one of the most important. It's also one of the reasons why the Arctic uh, regions are warming much faster than other parts of the globe. So since the Industrial Revolution, we've had approximately uh, one degree Celsius of global warming on average. But in the Arctic regions, if we look at them separately, we've had two to two to three degrees Celsius of warming in that same period. Um, and that's in part because of this accelerated warming due to uh, this, this ice albedo feedback mechanism that we talked about. Uh, we also have uh, the fact that heat has generally been transported from warm places to cold places by our large scale weather systems, our ocean currents. And then as the globe is warming as a whole, we're seeing this concentration and increase of heat energy that's been transported towards the poles. And it, that's forecast to continue and to increase as we go into the future. You know, we talk about this one degree, you know, rise, like the Paris Agreement's talking about, like we want to limit the global temperature, average temperature rise by 1.5 degrees. But what we mean by that is that there are some places that are going to see differences like even if we do limit it to 1.5 degrees places like the arctic might see a five or even a 10 degree difference because they're um, warming faster what's actually most likely to happen is the areas that are already the most sensitive and maybe some who are already under the most climate pressures already are the ones that are going to be already going to be the strongest affected going forward you know it's areas that are already very hot for example are likely to experience the you know the the strongest increase in heat waves and there are some other really interesting you know effects taking place like not only is is snow and ice reducing we're seeing that it's actually changing color in some ways as well we're having um, black carbon, which is basically released when you burn fossil fuels or you have forest fires or from dust, things like that. And this is getting deposited in snowfall onto our glaciers and ice sheets and, and snow cover. And that's darkening the snow and again, making it more likely for it to absorb more energy and more heat. We also have. So this is have partly a... due to the general circulation of atmospheric conditions, you know, that they'd be transporting you know sometimes we see like dust from the sahara or something like that 
um, in Ireland in the same way they might be like, you know, in the Arctic, they might see black carbon coming from forest fires further afield. Absolutely. And, it's, yeah. it's, it's all a linked system. You know, what happens in one part of the world, we can't isolate ourselves. It will affect other regions eventually because, as you say, Liz, we have this sort of global circulation of air and of, of water, which, which will eventually transport these things. We talked about the rivers of ice and we talked about the landscapes of ice, the ice caps. There's another one, the sea ice. Yes, that's right, Liz. So sea ice is obviously this another uh, region of ice that's very important to our, our global climate and our global ecosystem and, and our, on our weather as well. But around this time of year, usually see kind of after the winter, this is when the sea level is normally at its maximum extent. Isn't that right? That's right. It's like uh, we're recording this podcast in April. So we've just actually seen the maximum extent of Arctic sea ice just back on the 21st of March. And this year it was, I think, the joint seventh smallest winter peak tied with 2007 in a satellite record that spans like more than 40 years. It was peaking at 14.77 square kilometers. The reason why it's having its maximum extent in March instead of like midwinter in the Northern Hemisphere is basically the heat capacity of water, the physics of water. Water holds on to, to heat a lot longer than the land does. So you see this difference in that a delayed reaction from the water and, and from the sea ice as well. The sea ice, it's, it's a seasonal thing. It does come back um, in the winter, but um, every year on year, the, the sea ice is shrinking on average, basically. Um, like there are some years, there's some year-to-year variability, but the overall impact is that um, we're seeing a decline in, in the amount of sea ice um, that surrounds the Arctic. We're seeing things like shipping routes that weren't possible before open up because of, as you say, that, that, uh, that decline that happens. You know, at the moment, it's happening in the summer or, or late summer months where we're the sea ice is, is generally at its, at its lowest, but the prediction is that that could become the norm going forward year-round, that some of these routes could become ice-free. How much, how much of our oceans are, are taken up by sea ice? It covers around 10 to 12% of the world ocean um, in the polar regions. It's quite dynamic. It moves around and gets blown around by winds and ocean currents. So if we have a particularly stormy winter, say, in, in Europe, that can push the, the sea ice over to one side of the Arctic. Does our weather respond to the sea ice, say, here in Ireland? Can I know we're a little bit away from where the sea ice occurs, but does it have an impact on the weather that, that affects us here in, in Europe or in Ireland? Sea ice, basically, it impacts atmospheric moisture and clouds. So there is an effect like there is an effect on weather with sea ice, there, like a direct air water effect. And if you take it out of the, the predictive uh, models, like, you know, weather models, the weather models go wrong without it. You know, it, you, you do have to take it into account. It's just a very complex um, thing because it's something, it's a thing that moves and um, it's dynamic and it melts and it has a seasonal cycle and it has all of these things um, that make it quite a complicated thing to kind of grasp at. It's, it's um, you know, like ice in, in a glass in your drink. As long as the ice is there, it keeps the drink cool. But when it goes, the water will warm up and, and then you'll kind of get a straight curve. <laughs> like basically it'll just start warming and then all the feedbacks will occur and then it'll eat away at the ice sheet and, 
and it's kind of like the buffer zone really it's still an active area of research because it's it's actually quite interesting what they what they find like the impact is on on global weather patterns and it's not very straightforward you actually spent some time up in an area where there is sea ice no you you saw the sea ice um it did Liz. Were, yeah, and, yeah and you see how dynamic it is uh, like you've been saying how it can move around with the wind and it can melt and refreeze quite quickly surprisingly quickly i spent a couple of months in svalbard which is in the norwegian arctic and it is an area that is can be surrounded by sea ice or can be ice free in fact it's one of the locations that's warming the fastest of anywhere in the world in current uh, global climate conditions and you see for example the importance of sea ice there for navigation it's important for being able to travel along the coast both for the people who live there but also for the the very different animals that live there so for the polar bears for the reindeer that live in those areas uh, to be able to travel uh, safely across these fjords, things like that, and to be able to hunt as well for polar bears. They need the sea ice to use that. And just being in those Arctic regions in general, you see how fragile they are and how beautiful they are and how sort of otherworldly, you know, it's a part of the world that you go to and you really realize you're the visitor, you know, you're you're the person coming from the outside, that these places belong to the animals and creatures that live there it's very much their domain and uh, it's important that that we we protect that you know but but ultimately these regions in the arctic have a massive sort of functional benefit to our planet uh, to society in general and the ecosystems that depend on it and that is ultimately why we need to protect them we've discussed how ice in general it's it's important and the future projections um, to do with that and like what, what's going to happen. Like, we know, we've listened to Harry and Penny and we're basically committed to losing a certain portion of our of our snow ice. But the extent of this loss and how long it will continue, it's still up to us. We can still change how much disappears. And And there are positives in that context to think of in terms of commitments that we're making. So we we mentioned in the last episode how Ireland had committed to a 51% reduction in emissions by 2030 and to be carbon neutral by 2050. Then this month we have had the EU agree to cut carbon emissions by at least 55% by the end of this decade compared to 1990 levels. The UK um, announced as well that it was going to make some radical plans to cut carbon emissions by 78% by 2035 um, earlier this week as well. The US has vowed to cut its planet heating emissions by at least half by the end of this decade, 2030, from uh, leaving the Paris Agreement to coming back and um, and committing to this, has to be said, um, really hopeful promise. That brings us to the end of this episode. Our thanks again to Dr. Harry Zakalari and Dr. Penny Howe for joining us this month and helping us to understand the importance of ice to our planet. Feel free to get in touch with us about this episode or any other weather and climate related topics on MetAaron and RT Weather social channels or by emailing us at podcast at met.ie or weather at rte.ie. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and do check out our previous episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and take care. The Met Aaron podcast was researched and presented by Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick and Liz Walsh. The podcast is produced and edited by Jenny Lanagon.